0: So, hi, I'm joined by Rosemary J, Senior Consultant Attorney at Hunter & Williams. Um, we're going to have a quick discussion in terms of the new General Data Protection Regulation and its impact on organisations uh, across the globe. Uh, so, thank you, Rosemary, for joining uh, today. Um, we're going to start off with some of the key articles in relation to GDPR and how, how it will impact organisations going forward. Um, one of those articles um, in relation to information security is Article 32 and the security of processing. Um, again, a quick recap for those unfamiliar with the article. It talks clearly around personal data must be processed in a manner that ensures appropriate security of the personal data. It is uh, included uh, includes protection against unauthorized or unlawful processing, as well as against accidental loss, destruction, or damage using those appropriate technical or organizational uh, controls. So um, what is considered appropriate is probably a key talking point. Uh, how organisations can actually uh, look to achieve a level of compliance around, again, what, what is considered appropriate are all good talking points. Um, do you have any advice in relation to this article that you can share with, uh, with with listeners today?
1: Well, I think where I'd start is that it should look pretty familiar because the existing directive has a strong security obligation and so that process of carrying out risk assessments and looking at appropriate ways to guard against accidental loss or destruction damage and so on um, should already be there in organisations. However I do think it's important that people don't sort of just say oh we've seen this before we'll just do what we always do. there is an increased focus on security because of the breach notice requirements, of course, and so I think people should look at it again. So one of the things i draw out is the very specific provision that says that when you're looking at risk, and the core assessment is, is risk, you're looking specifically at risk to the privacy of data subjects. Now, lots of security assessments I won't say broad brush, that wouldn't be fair, but they look at a range of risks and very often um, financial considerations or or, uh, IP rights are very high on the list. So this is one that really needs to focus on the personal data. So people really need to make sure they're doing this risk assessment for all of their personal data processing systems, which sometimes aren't seen as as sensitive as some, of, some financial, for example. So I think that's the first thing, is kind of look at it in new eyes and say, well, where have we got the personal data? What kind of data is it? What are the risks,
0: potentially, and from whom? Okay, great. In terms of um, this, this article, it talks, again, uh, and it talks about guidance around state-of-the-art and the associated implementation costs in respect to risk mitigation and of course the nature of the personal data to be protected. Mm-hmm. Is there any guidance uh, or any discussion points that we can have around, again, what is considered state-of-the-art and what is, again, appro- considered appropriate in respect to these uh, costs in terms of risk mitigation? It's clearly a proportionate requirement
1: in that there is no absolute that says you must go off and buy state-of-the-art security if, in fact, your your personal data is relatively low level, includes no data in the special categories, and you don't assess that there is a particular risk. So it is very much an individual test for the business. What is our data? What are the kinds of data? And what are the risks? Are we a honeypot? Are we one of those organizations that people will try and target? Are we, what's our previous experience in this area? Do we have huge of, turnover of staff that we need to deal with and make sure we're safeguarding there? I think you can't give um, you can't give an exhaustive list. You have to say you need to look at your data and then you have to look at the mechanisms to secure it. And I think it's really important to bear in mind that those mechanisms have to be a range of appropriate organisational and technical measures. So you're looking at... You're looking at an entire building you're looking at an entire structure to try and make sure your data is kept safe and not just you know one big expensive pillar mm-hmm. sitting in the middle um, and you can only build that structure by looking at all the components and pulling all those in thinking about your staff your training as well as your technical controls
0: and In addition, would there be any kind of key action points that you could take as part of this article? Um, Of course looking at just the um, as you mentioned before the review of your your processing activities are there any additional action action points that organisations need to consider?
1: Well I think what they do need to do is to look at at how this interacts with other requirements of the regulation. So for example the hard obligation to minimise the data that you hold to have proper retention periods, to, enc- to, um, to pseudonymise data when you no longer need it to be identifiable. Because if you don't follow those requirements and you're holding on to great swathes of personal data, you're increasing your risk. So actually, one of the things you need to do is take a holistic view of your compliance and say, well, I need to be getting rid of data I need to be stopping people having access to data. I need to be separating out identifiers from the pseudonymized data. So actually, a lot of the requirements and practices in the rest of the regulation are supportive of and work towards compliance with, with this one. Not They're not enough on their own. You have to do all of them. But I think that's an element
0: to bear in mind. And again, one one additional point was around um, again some recent discussions we had was around the certification. Um, So consider organisations to consider seeking um, organisations to consider seeking certification to demonstrate their security credentials. Uh, What can be discussed at this stage in terms of that guidance, and what levels of certification organisations do they need to look for?
1: Well, I think I think we have to make a distinction between the processes for codes of practice and certification which will be developed under the regulation and the fact that there are existing security standards and security mechanisms out there already in the market. What the regulation talks about um, is specifically the codes of practice and certification mechanisms that will be developed for the purposes of this regulation. Now. It would be quite a time before we get to that stage, before those uh, those new mechanisms are developed under the regulation. But there are, you know, formal mechanisms that once those are developed, compliance with those can be used to contribute towards your evidence that you've gone for appropriate security. Um, And one of the things, obviously, organisations can do is take an interest in how those develop, contribute to their development, consider how they might apply going forward. But those are rather long term at the moment. Um, And the other side of that is the potential to use existing standards, which so many businesses already do. They use um, security standards, they use PCI standards as part of the, the weaponry, as it were, to, to build defences and to do evidence mm. that they have put in place appropriate security. And those remain appropriate mechanisms, although they're not sanctioned by the regulation yeah. specifically.
0: So um, the next article that I wanted to discuss was um, perhaps the one that keeps most uh, CISOs awake at night is Article 33 and Article 34. Uh, the requirement to notify the um, supervisory authority of a data breach, and of course, when we start looking at specifically this area, we know that organisations have put in um, levels of control to deal with external threat, internal th- inside threat, etc. In part of the organisation, but there's also a discussion point that we need to have around again that 72 hour period, uh, that notice period, and how organisations start dealing with when when that kicks in, when that initiates, um, as well as again what. What is the likelihood of asking for an extension because of a, an investigation that's ongoing? So um, the questions I've got around that are, again, with Article 33 and 34 in mind, kind of how how can an organisation best prepare themselves for that for that mandatory data breach notification requirement?
1: Um, well, obviously it'd be best not to have a data breach, <laughs> but. Um, if we accept that that is going to happen to some people, the first thing I think we should say is 72 hours is not a hard obligation. The obligation is to to notify without undue delay, which in fact might be more uh, earlier than 72 hours, and where feasible, not later than 72 hours. So there will be circumstances where it's simply impossible to give a proper notice, even an initial notice. And the other thing um, is that the notice, although there's a list of things that have to be notified, it recognises that you might not be able to give all of these all at once. So I think what we will see develop in practice um, are guidelines around staged notifications so that data controllers are encouraged to send in an early notification to alert the regulator to the fact of the event, but the more detailed information is given as the evidence unfolds and it becomes clear as to what has happened. Um, I think one of the practical problems, um, well, a couple of practical problems, and one is time zones. In your 72 hours, if actually you are a business operating at over a number of time zones, by the time if you've had your breach somewhere in somewhere in the Far East, and your security people who work in another time zone have picked it up and looked at it, and then they've had to pass it on to head office and the data protection officer back in Europe. Actually, 72 hours, given the way the world turns, is not a huge length of time. Um, And the other, of course, is sometimes data breaches are actually quite hard to see. They can lie hidden for... A long time, and again, it goes to this question of: Have you got? Have you got basically old data lying around that you never use? Nobody knows what it is. The equivalent of data in the attic, um, and it's there that data breaches. Very often, it can be quite a long time before somebody realizes that that actually the attic's been burgled, or whatever it is. Um, So again, I think this comes to taking a holistic view, trying to make sure that you know where your data is, you've got reporting mechanisms, you know what your data is, and um, you've, you've put in place as best you can those lines that people understand who they've got to tell and as quickly as possible
0: again I guess an action point will be um, to go over this in a, a test scenario with the data protection officer because they will be the individual that will be uh, liaising with the supervisory authority to report of a data breach so is there any um, further discussion points we can have an action points we can have around engagement with, with the data protection officer and a bit more about that role
1: yes the data protection officer is mandated in certain types of organisations. If you carry out monitoring of um, or on a large scale or you're a public body. Now, that actually doesn't apply to everybody. So we have to look at the role of the data protection officer and it's actually a protected employment role. It has very specific obligations. There's a legal obligation to be involved in data protection by design and so on. I would just make a really basic point that if you're an organisation that doesn't have to have a mandatory data protection officer, it's quite important to look at the person you're First of all, you need to have somebody who does your privacy, somebody who's actually going to pull it together and be in charge of it. And you need to look at, are you going to appoint them as a data protection officer under this law, or are you going to say, you're not a data protection officer under this law, so you don't actually have to do all of these tasks, Um, but, and you don't get protected employment, which, you know, is an employment consideration, but you have got these responsibilities and we expect you to do this. So whether it's your data protection officer or the responsible officer, you definitely do need someone who has that, that overview and that ability to pull together. And as you said, somebody who can you know, run tests for security breaches and pull people together and know who is contacted and everyone knows they're the linchpin in the event is a really important thing.
0: Yeah, and of course with their reporting uh, to, the, to the senior person in the organisation to set urgency, uh, to get ready for that response in 72 hours. But that also extends to, um, again, Article 17 that talks about the right to erasure, uh, and how, uh, again, a, a, a data subject can request their data p- to be erased. And of course we now see a, um, or expecting anyway with GDPR, there to be lots of requests coming in for right to erasure, and also subject access requests. So... As part of Article 17, to turn it into into, into kind of this area, how are organisations do you think are going to be be able able to handle potentially being inundated with subject access requests? And of course, in certain uh, countries, um, this being, again, a a freedom, a right uh, without any cost associated, how do you think organisations are going to have to start preparing for this?
1: Subject access is an existing right, and there doesn't seem to be anything obvious in terms of the, the regulation to spark off a great wave of applications. I think potentially the increase will come in those jurisdictions where in the past there has been some form of gateway to access, particularly over just a fee, because it's surprising how much even a £10 fee does, you know puts people off. They think, well, it might just be worth a waste of £10. Um, I mean, interestingly though, um, generally subject access requests haven't been used as a nuisance mechanism. They have tended to be used where there is some basis for them. Um, And I think it's quite difficult to look into the future and say, well, we think there'll be a problem with this or this. Um, Where we don't know, the the input and there will be a big impact I think eventually in the future is that extension of subject access into portability mm-hmm. where people want to actually be able to move their data or have the complete copy of the data they have they have disclosed and we've already seen differences in views as to what that involves because the um, the draft guidance that came out uh, from Article Twenty Nine said that should cover all the data held about you whereas The wording in the article is it's the data you have supplied so we don't know how that will go in the future so there will be resource implications there subject access it's a lot more difficult to to decide what the what the impact potentially Mm -hmm. might be.
0: And with with data portability um, again looking at again makes a clear statement around what is technically feasible to allow for data portability. So again, that's another really, uh, I guess, most discussed point in terms of organizations is, again, what can be considered technically feasible and what isn't considered feasible as part of that. Um, Mm. In terms of portability, also then link this to um, chapter five um, around data transfers. Um, around uh, transfers of personal data to third countries or international organisations. So it would be good to go through um, in a bit more detail uh, Chapter 5 and how organisations, again, need to be prepared. Um, One quick statement obviously talks around, again, jurisdictions outside of the EEA and what those jurisdictions are and, of course, how that's going to change going forward as well. Uh, and Also existing, um, uh, again, data transfer agreements such as Privacy Shield and how that will also impact um, as part of GDPR. So again, is there a a quick overview that you can give around Chapter 5, how organisations need to deal with data transfer uh, requests and, of course, sorry, data transfer agreements?
1: Well, I think very helpfully, just some few points, this is one of the few areas where we have got existing instruments preserved. So existing adequacy decisions and the current model clauses remain in force. We don't really know for BCRs um, whether existing BCRs will continue to be regarded as valid. But I think the likelihood is that individual supervisory authorities will make determinations around those. And one would hope that, that what where they're going to go is to say, look, let's leave the existing BCRs as they are and have a process where we change them to bring them up to um, regulation level. Um so the pattern of mechanisms actually looks very similar. It's one of the bits of the regulation that look familiar um, to users, to those who are familiar with the directive. And some of the important changes actually are quite dis- – they, they pass you by. But the fact that model clauses don't have to be submitted to supervisory authorities ever and that no supervisory authority can start to say, I want to sign off your model clauses – is going to be a really big change for lots of businesses that do business in the EU using model clauses. And it will make them a lot more attractive. Um, so I think those are the things I'd kind of call out immediately as, as big picture points. Yeah.
0: And in, in terms of obviously when we consider data transfers and existing agreements in place and moving forward with those model clauses, um, an area, of course, comes into point around again cloud services, cloud service providers, cloud applications, around data sovereignty about where their data is actually being stored and transferred to. Um, again, any advice on, to an organisation on how they actually manage data flows and actually start considering again I mentioned before that, again outside of the EEA how they actually look to, uh, to support that again. Um, of course, it's good to have the, um, uh, the, the agreement in place, the contract in place, a level of governance around those processing activities. But of course, I think most organizations realize that there's a level of um, uh, usability of data outside of those, those frameworks and those, those standards, etc. So again, is there any kind of action points that we can talk about clearly in terms of how organization can help understand their, their data flows themselves?
1: I think those are kind of in, those are very interesting, uh, I- interesting points. Really, um, I would call out the the areas of change, particularly well, two or three things. Data processors. Most cloud services are provided through third party data processors, so data controllers will have to make sure that they know who all their data processors are and the contracts with data processors will need to be reviewed and brought up to speed under the regulation and um, data processors will no longer be able to make transfers of their own volition now this may sound a very esoteric point most data controllers actually have a provision in their processor contracts that say you mustn't transfer without my say so But it's not mandatory and not all do so in some circumstances a data processor might be using a sub processor or making a transfer that actually the data controller isn't aware of. So there are two elements that come out there because the other side of that is data controllers have to know who the sub processors are and ensure they are a- aware of those and controlling them. So if they've got these these you know big data processor contracts where they're using services. Very often cloud services, they need to be walking into those and saying, where actually is this data being processed? And are you using sub-processors? And I need to look at my contracts and bring those up to speed. And it might sound a dreadful job, but actually there is... um, an impetus for data processors to cooperate in that because processors are equally subject to the regulation going forward. So one hopes that that might be a a positive discussion between the parties, but potentially there's a lot of work there.
0: Okay, Uh, thank you so much, Rosemary Jay, Senior Consultant Attorney at and Williams and also author of the Guide to General Data Protection Regulation. Thank you.